And good morning, church family. Does everybody have the handout for the lesson today? The ushers are bringing them forward now. Be sure everybody has one. If you need a pen, uh, there'll be a pen right in front of your seat. And uh, this is a lesson I told your pastor that just recently I've begun to bring. And uh, I have gotten so much feedback over the last few months from this particular sermon that I preached in this lesson. And so with that said, uh, I'll have these two young men in the front row right here. If you guys can grab that table and bring it right over here. And I'm going to set three chairs on top of that. And then if you are over in this section here, probably you want to shift a little bit this way. Because you're not going to be able to see those chairs that well. You're in the dead zone right here. Nothing against that zone. It's just kind of the dead zone. And so if you want to just slip over a little bit that way and keep them in the order they're in, that one will be all the way over here. Yeah. Just set them right up on top of the table. Right up on top. Yeah. All right. Just set them right there just like that. No, you don't have to get in them. I don't want you getting in them. This is good. And uh, thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, there are three chairs there. All right. And so if you can't see those three chairs, just shift over so you can. And then everybody has a handout. Everybody has a handout. All right. If you need a pen, you don't have one. Maybe you're somewhere there isn't one. Just slip your hand up. We'll make sure you get that. This is something you'll use for the rest of your life. And after this lesson this morning, you will think about this sermon probably every day for years to come. Take your Bibles and go to Joshua 24. Joshua chapter 24. And once you find your place, if you're able to stand comfortably, stand with me. All right. Joshua 24. I want to begin reading in verse number 14. Joshua is exhorting the children of Israel now as they go in to possess the land. Listen to what he says here in Joshua 24 and verse 14. He says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in truth. And put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt and serve ye the Lord. And notice this challenge. He says, and if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve. And now he gives them actually three choices. Whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. Notice this flag plant moment here, this bold declaration. He says, but as for me and my house, pow, we will serve the Lord. Now, notice how the people respond in verse 16. And the people answered and said, God forbid that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. We see their resolution and the response to the challenge. They say, God forbid that we don't serve the true and living God. Notice Joshua chides them in verse 19. And Joshua said unto the people, ye cannot serve the Lord, for he's holy. They respond in verse 21 and reconfirm, nay, but we will serve the Lord. In verse 24, a third time, the people said unto Joshua, the Lord our God will we serve, and his voice will we obey. We see the resolution of God's people in Joshua 24. But just turn your Bible two pages further to Judges chapter 2. And notice what happens after this. In Judges 2, in verse number 6, 
The Bible says, and when Joshua had let the people go, the children of Israel went every man unto his inheritance to possess the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. And all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord that he did for Israel. Verse 8. Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they bury him in verse 9. And now look at this sad epitaph in verse number 10. And also all that generation were gathered unto their fathers, and there arose another generation after them, which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods. In Joshua 24, with a great chorus of confirmation, collectively as a group, they say, God forbid that we don't serve this God. And yet just two generations later, There arises a generation that doesn't even know Him. They forsake Him. They live in sin. And they serve other gods. You know, can I remind you this morning, the writer of Proverbs said it this way, and he asked a question, Doth the crown endure to every generation? And the answer clearly is this, no. This morning, dad and mom, just because you're serving the Lord, that doesn't necessarily guarantee your children will. Just because your children this morning are serving the Lord does not necessarily guarantee your grandchildren will. There's a natural digression downward, not upward. The crown rarely endures to every generation, but it ought to. There are three generations in Judges 2. These three generations are represented by those three chairs. Those three chairs represent three types of people in this congregation today and in the world out there. One of those chairs is yours. I want to go ahead and pray and ask God's blessing on this thought. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege we have to be here in your house and with your people. And Father, thank you for the great honor this morning we have to not simply address you as our God but as our Father. Lord, for each of us that are saved, we praise You for the day that You showed us not only who we were, but who You were. And then You offered Your Son to us. And we're grateful for the day that our faith found a resting place in Jesus Christ alone. Thank You for the day You saved us. And now, Lord, as we consider this thought this morning, I pray You would help us to empty ourselves of busy thoughts, cares, attitudes. Lord, help us not to presume just because we're here, you'll be here. I pray that you would cleanse us of any sin that would hinder your Holy Spirit. And Father, may you speak to every heart that's here. May you have preeminence and free reign. May your son be lifted up and exalted. And for the one who is not saved, we pray that you would save them. But for each of us that are saved, Lord, we would desire a close and intimate personal walk with you. Bless this thought now, I pray, please, and I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In Judges chapter 2, if you have your pen, I want you to just put a little tick 
in your Bible by each of the three generations we're going to look at this morning. The very first generation we're going to consider is in Judges 2 and verse 7. And it says, and the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, right beside that line. Just put a little tick. There's our first generation. I call it the Joshua generation. And then right after that, in verse 7 of Judges 2, it says, and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua. There's your second generation. Just put a little tick there. They're the elders that outlived Joshua. And then our third and final generation we find in verse number 10. It says also all that generation were gathered unto their fathers. There arose another generation after them. Put a little tick there. That is our third and final generation. These three chairs up here this morning represent those three generations. But these three chairs this morning also represent three types of people All around the world, outside of this auditorium, and probably even inside of this auditorium as well. And at the end of this lesson this morning, as we prepare to go home, you should have been able to accomplish three goals. Write them in. Number one, you should be able to identify at the end of this message where you sit. Which of these three chairs belongs to you? Second of all, Mom and dad, you should be able to identify where your children sit. Write that in there. By the time we get done with this lesson, you should be able to scroll through your children and determine with a fair amount of accuracy which one of those chairs each of them is in. And then thirdly, this is a fun one, young people, you're going to love this. You should be able to identify where your parents sit. All right. By the time we get done with this lesson, teenager, you get the great opportunity to go say mom's in that chair or dad's in that chair. All right. This is a great opportunity. So three goals should be accomplished. And let's look at the two most obvious generations and chairs first. Let's look at chair number one. What is chair number one? Chair number one is the godly chair. Write that in there. Chair number one is the godly chair. It's Joshua's chair. Notice how it's described in in Scripture in Joshua 24. Look at what he says here in verse number 14. Joshua says this in Joshua 24, 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth. Look at verse 15. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve. Now, notice the Joshua chair says this. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The Joshua chair is the godly chair. Look at its description. Write this in very quickly as we consider it. First of all, its relationship to God. Those seated in this chair, their relationship to God is commitment. Commitment. Not merely involvement. They're not just somewhat involved. They are totally committed. And let me say this morning, there is a difference between involvement and commitment. My mentor, the late Dr. Gary Prisk, used to love to share the story of a good farmer named Farmer Jones. 
And he was such a good farmer, took such good care of his animals, that one day they got together a couple days before his birthday and said this. They begin to cluck and moo and talk. You know, Farmer Jones has been a wonderful farmer. He feeds us on time. He takes care of us. The vet is always there to keep us healthy. And what could we possibly do for his birthday to show him our appreciation? They clucked and mooed and talked, and all of a sudden they got an idea. Let's go ahead and make him breakfast for his birthday. Why, the little hen, she got all excited. Cluck, cluck, cluck. I'll provide the egg, she said. Oh, this is going to be good. And the cow mooed and said, I'll provide the milk. Oh, great. And then they all turned and looked at the pig. You see, to provide that breakfast to Farmer Jones, the cow and the chicken were involved. But that pig, to do his part, was committed. Amen? It was a one-way deal. Let me just say, those in this chair, those in the godly chair, that, and first of all, they have to be saved. They had to have made peace with God through the blood of Calvary. Those in this chair, they are all in. It is a one-way deal. Job said in Job 13, 15, Though he slay me, yet will I still trust in him. There is no ifs, ands, or buts. They're not going to serve him if it's easy. They're going to serve him no matter what. Their attitude is commitment. Number two, the relationship to truth, they're owners. They're owners. Preached a message Friday night called, Buy the Truth and Sell It Not. And the question was, do you rent or do you own? Do you borrow it or do you buy into it and make it yours? They're owners. Their attitude towards serving God is a very simple one. Those in this chair, write it down, want to. They want to. You don't have to make them serve the Lord. Their attitude is not, do I have to? It's, do I get to? I served a loser God for 18 years. I got saved. I'm on the winning side. Amen. His kingdom will never end. And I'll never be ashamed of my Savior when I meet Him. He'll be more than I expected. I want to serve Him. Those in this chair want to serve the Lord. Their characteristics are simple. The first thing, notice this. They fear the Lord. They fear the Lord. Notice Joshua says this in Joshua 24 and verse 14. He says, now therefore what? Fear the Lord. Could I say this morning that the fear of the Lord is a good thing, not a bad thing? In fact, Proverbs 9 and verse 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And those in this chair, they genuinely fear the Lord. They see Him for who He is, an all-powerful, all-knowing Creator. As a result, they serve the Lord. Their fear of God gives them a sin sensitivity. And the result is they desire to serve Him, not live contrary to Him. And notice they serve Him. This is interesting. Look at Joshua 24 and verse 14. He says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him. Everybody has a different idea what it means to serve the Lord. I mean, if I were to come to every one of you with a microphone this morning and say, Do you serve the Lord? I'm, you'd probably say, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yep, I serve the Lord. Yep, yep, yep. Me, put that in the serve list. Mm-hmm. 
But everybody has a different idea what it is, but God nails it down. Acceptable service to God is that which is done in sincerity and in truth. Write that in. What does that mean, to serve Him in sincerity and in truth? First of all, the truth part means this. John 17, 17, Jesus said, Thy word is truth. You serve Him according to what God says is truth, not what you say is truth. Amen? P.S. He got here a long time before you. He made the rules of what's acceptable. You say, well, I don't like the rules. Too bad. His game. He got here first. Amen? And not all worship is acceptable, and not all service is acceptable. The one being worshipped determines what's acceptable, not the worshiper. And so he says, those in this chair, they serve him. They genuinely love serving him, but they serve him in sincerity and truth. In other words, how they serve him lines up with his word and what he says is acceptable, but they also serve him in sincerity. Fascinating word. The word sincere literally means without wax. It's a potter's term. It comes from the Roman Empire. You see what would happen sometimes when they would form up a clay jar and they would fire it. It would have a flaw and you'd get a hairline crack. So a merchant would have to throw it away. He'd lose his wholesale product. But an unscrupulous merchant would put wax in that and then paint it inside, paint it outside. So when you picked it up and looked at it, it looked like the real deal. But it was insincere. It had wax. You would shell out your money, go home, put something hot in it, and that hidden flaw you could not see with your eyes, oh man, that hot liquid would melt the wax and that thing would spring a leak. It was insincere. You know what our goal should always be as we approach the Lord, whether that's privately, whether that's publicly? We shouldn't politic and posture. This place should never be a wax museum of perfection on display. Why, when you come here, our deacons glow. Our choir, sinless perfection. I believe we ought to do the best we can for the Lord. But let me tell you, this should never have the idea it's a wax museum of perfection on display. You know why? Because truth be known, we're all cracked pots. This is a hospital. For sinners and saints. Amen. My, my mentor Gary Prisk used to love to say, if you really think about people and you look at all of the collective congregation and the masses, really it's a little like old MacDonald. Here a flaw, there a flaw. Everywhere a flaw, flaw. We're flawed people. We're cracked pots. And in an area of our country where it's all about politicking, it's all about posturing, God says, I want you to be real all the way to the core. I don't want you to present yourself as something you're not. I want you to be genuine, sincere, and serve me in sincerity and truth. Those in that godly chair, they serve Him in sincerity and in truth. They're very real. And they're Private life is consistent with their public life. They're not two people. Amen? They're real. Notice this. They obey the Lord. Write that in there. They obey the Lord. Not just publicly when people are watching. They obey Him in their private life as well. Their focus is upward. Write that in. 
Those in this chair, they are totally consumed with an upward focus. And specifically, number two, it is the Lord. Go to Psalm 51 and notice what David said here as we, we get toward the end of chair number one. Look at what's said in Psalm 51. The very middle of your Bible breaks to the book of Psalms. And in Psalm 51, David has sinned against the Lord. He's crying out to God for mercy. He's committed adultery with Bathsheba. He's tried to cover his sin by murdering Uriah. He's betrayed the kingdom. He's betrayed his God. Notice his cry for mercy. In Psalm 51, he says in verse 1, Have mercy upon me, O God. Verse 2, Wash me and cleanse me. Verse 3, I admit, I acknowledge my transgression and my sin. And watch what he says in verse 4. Against thee, thee, say that next word with me, only. Say it again. Only have I sinned. David, what do you mean you only sinned against God? You've transgressed against Bathsheba. David, you you transgressed against Uriah. You hired him for hit. David, you betrayed your whole kingdom. What do you mean you only sinned against God? You know, as far as David was concerned, that was the ultimate letdown right there. That was the one he betrayed above all others was his God. You know those in the godly chair? They go through their entire day with an awareness of God. They genuinely care what He thinks about them more than anybody else. Amen? It bothers them. I remember as a young Marine, newly saved, working on the tail of one of my jets... And I had one of those big speed handles, and I was taking off a radar unit from the bottom. And I was working that thing, and all of a sudden, phew, pow. Anybody ever had that happen? I just speed handle hit to the head. I was probably three months old in the Lord, and immediately I did what I always did when I was lost. I swore. No one was around. And as soon as that word went out of my lips as a young Marine, newly saved, my heart was crushed. I remember right there just taking a knee and saying, God, forgive me. No one caught me. But suddenly now that I'm saved, He did. Amen? Listen, those in this chair, their focus is upward. It's specifically the Lord. He's the one they're living for. And because of that, their private life and their public life is totally consistent. It doesn't matter if someone's watching or not. Their whole obsession is a God who sees it all. Amen? The habits of those in this chair, a very interesting set of habits if you want to write them down. Daily prayer. They spend time with the Lord one-on-one. They have a personal walk with Him. Daily prayer and Bible reading. You'll find them in the Word of God. It's not just a Sunday morning thing. It's not just a Sunday night thing. Daily, they're working their way through the Word of God and reading it. They want to hear from Him and they want to talk to Him. Number two, there's confession of sin. On a daily basis, they're keeping it short. There's things that bother them, attitudes they have. My wife and I are reading a book. I told the men in prayer time Saturday morning, it's called a book called Respectable Sins. Sins that you and I would say, ah, that's respectable. Impatience, the sin of impatience. 
The sin of pride, the sin of ingratitude. Man, this book will chew you up and spit you out. And she read me a chapter, and, and I'm cruising along in the motorhome. She reads a chapter, she finishes, and she said, you want me to read another chapter? I said, no. That is loaded my wagon. Those in this chair, they, there's that sin sensitivity, and they're always speaking with Father. Getting things right. There is faithfulness to the house of God. Point C, write that in there. They're very faithful to the house of God. They know that's an extension of who they are. They want to be with God's people, not the world's. And fourthly, there's a constant examination. There's a constant examination. They're always, search me, O God, try me, know me, show me. If there's be any wicked way, show me, Lord. They're constantly allowing Him to examine them. And their spiritual temperature is what? Say it. What do you think it is? Hot. They're passionate about the Lord. Those in this chair, they're not thermometers. They don't just take on what's around them. They're thermostats. They set the temperature because of who is in them and whose power they are with and who they're constantly walking with. And notice something, and this is big. Don't miss this, and I want to go to the next chair. Those in this chair, this is a big deal. Don't miss this. Those in this chair, not the second chair, not the third chair. Those in this chair enjoy three things that the flesh cannot duplicate. The flesh cannot duplicate this. Number one, they see answered prayers. Flesh can't duplicate that. And you know why they see answered prayers? You want to get a real basic one? Because they actually pray. They actually spend time with God talking to them and sharing their heart. They see answered prayers. Flesh can't make that happen. Number two, they enjoy abiding peace. They enjoy abiding peace. Those in this chair are so focused on an unchanging God, they have a peace that passes all understanding. It doesn't matter what the boss is doing at work. It doesn't matter what the 401k did with the market. It doesn't matter what's going on here with the car broke down there. They have a peace that passes all understanding. They're not like a spiritual stock market in all the swings, the sells, and the puts. And thirdly, they experience, this is big, Power over sin. Do you know this morning your flesh can't do that for you? You can discipline yourself out of sin for a little bit. But if you're the only thing battling sin, I'm going to tell you right now, you're not bigger than sin. But Jesus is. Amen? Because He defeated death, hell, sin, and the grave. You walk with Him, you get His power. You just walk with you, you just get your power. Amen? And so chair number one, that godly chair, boy, that is a chair. And right about now, most of us should have an idea if we're even near that chair or not. But let's go to the next most obvious chair, chair number three. What is chair number three? Chair number three... That third generation is the godless chair. Write that in there. This is the godless chair. It's not the godly chair. It's the godless chair. 
Notice a description of those in this chair in Judges chapter 2. Very quickly, go there with me. In Judges 2, in verse number 10, it says this, And also all that generation were gathered unto their fathers. There arose another generation after them. And notice a description of those in the godless chair. Notice, which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. They did evil in the sight of the Lord, verse 11. And verse 12, they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, and the verse 12 says they followed other gods. Chair number three is the godless chair. And let me just say, if you look at my notes, I wrote something in there. There are many in America today that are in that chair. That is a full chair in our nation today. You say, but whoa, whoa, whoa. We have this bumper sticker that says, God bless America. And you know what I say? That most of the time is just an honoring with the lips, but never with a life. America is a very godless nation today. We chase other gods. We have gods called entertainment. We have gods called electronics. We have, you just list the gods. We have a pile of them. And let me just say this. If you want to know who your god is, give me your credit card statement. Give me your checkbook. And let me see how you spend your time. And wherever those three go, that's your god. That's your god. All gods require sacrifice. All gods receive things. Your time, your treasure, your talents, tell me who you really chase. Notice this chair, though. Look at the description here. Their relationship to God is conflict. They're conflicted with God. They're not committed to Him. They're conflicted with Him. They're always living contrary to His Word and His will. Number two. The relationship to truth, they're rejectors. You can show them a Bible verse, and you know what they'll say in their heart? I don't care what the Bible says. This is what I want to do. They reject the truth. Thirdly, their attitude towards serving God, they don't want to. They don't want to. Those in the godless chair don't want to. And notice the characteristics here in Judges 2. Look at what's said. It says, number one, they knew not the Lord. Write that in there. They don't know the Lord. That simply means this. They are unsaved. They've never been born again. They've never tasted the mercy and forgiveness of God. Number two, they forsake the Lord. And number three, they live sinful lives and serve other gods. And if you could just sum up that third chair, number four, here's what it is. They do not fear, serve, or obey the Lord. Go to Titus with me and watch this in Titus 1. Look at this New Testament verse that just cuts through a whole bunch of stuff and causes us to pause for a moment and ponder. In Titus chapter 1, Titus is reviewing unsaved people. He's reviewing those who don't know the Lord. He's reviewing their life, not their lips. And he's looking at who they really are. And in Titus chapter 1, look at what he says. First and Second Timothy, Titus, if you're in Revelation, you've gone too far. Come on back, come on back. If you're in Timothy, you're just about there. Titus chapter 1, look at what he says in verse number 15. You ready for this? Unto the pure, all things are pure. But unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. But even their mind and their conscience is defiled. Their thought life, you couldn't even put it on a screen. 
Watch verse 16. Be prepared. They profess that they know God. If you were to come up to them and ask them, do you know the Lord? You'd hear things like, oh, yeah. I did that. I prayed the prayer. Oh, yeah, I know the Lord. Their lips would tell you they're okay. But watch what their life says. Titus says this. They profess that they know God, but in works, they deny Him. Being abominable and, ooh, disobedient. And unto every good work, reprobate, which means void of discernment and judgment. They're outside looking in, even though they tell you they're inside. Look up for just a moment. I want to give you something very practical. I have traveled America for years. I began as a farm boy, got saved when I joined the Marine Corps at the age of 18. I worked for corporate America when I got to Alaska. I'm a private pilot. I'm a bungee jumper. I'm a scuba diver. I have literally done anything and everything you can imagine. And I have walked with different people from every walk of life. You introduce me to a farm community, I'm in. I know what those boys are thinking. I am right there. You introduced me to the millionaires, walked with them. They just got bigger, more expensive problems. They're no different than the farm boys. You introduced me to the city guys. You introduced me to the military. You introduced me to aviators. I'm in. And let me tell you, as I go through different people and I meet people, there are some personalities out there. They're just fun to be with. They're not saved, but they're just fun. I can meet some CEOs in America. They're not saved. But man, I'm in. We talk. I respect them. they got character. There are officers in the military today. High-ranking flag. They're not saved. But man, they are character individuals. They are amazing people. I connect with them. I enjoy them. But I've learned when I want to go to the spiritual need, I have to get past a lot of stuff. I have to get beyond their personality. I have to get beyond their excuses. Well, I don't serve the Lord because, you know, I had a bad experience in church. Everybody's got an excuse. I have to get past their good intentions. Well, I, I'm trying. I have to get past their tears. And I have to just look at their life and say, what does their life say concerning how they live? And you know, many times what I find out, I get past their excuses, I get past their personality, I get past their character that they picked up in life, and they don't love the Lord, they don't serve the Lord, they don't obey the Lord. They live contrary to His Word, and they live contrary to His will. They're lost. Titus says that. You can't listen to what they say. Look deeper to what their life says. Those in that third chair, their focus is inward. Write that down. You know what their obsession is? Self. Self. Write that down. That's who they live for. They don't live for God's smile. They live for their smile. The end of the day, they want to be pleasured. They want the joy. They're not interested in God's smile. They wake up wanting their smile. They live a life of self-absorption, self-gratification, and self-promotion. The habits of those in this chair, they love the world. 
They love their sin. And really, when you get down to it and you track them through life, they really live totally for this life only. And their spiritual temperature is not hot. What do you think it is? Say it. Cold. Say cold. Cold. Write it down. They are cold to the things of God. You've got to drag them to church. They're not interested in coming. This is not their crowd. You are not their people. This is not what they like to read. They are here because they have to be. They've been shamed to come. Whatever the reason. But they are cold to the things of God. And by the way, you want to miss, don't want to miss this. We'll go to our final chair. Those in the first chair and those in the third chair, though they are literally polar opposites, they have one thing in common. And it's a big deal. What do you think that thing is? I want you to talk to me real quickly. Just slip your hand up and say, I know what they have in common. Now, beyond the fact they're both created by God, all right? That's a Sunday school answer. We're looking for something a little deeper than that, all right? What would be the one thing those in the godly chair and those in the godless chair would actually have in common? Yes. Okay, they're sinners, all right? Let's go beyond that. Yes. They are singularly focused on their God, and they're unashamed of Him. Amen? They are real. <laughs> they brag about their God. They try to get you to join them with their God. They're bar hobs. They say, come on, man, let's go ahead and pop a brewski. Come on, man, what are you doing? Who do you, you know, the units in the Marine Corps, who, what? Summer dork. They'd say, what? Come on, man. No, I said, man, I ain't going there. I'll pour you back into the barracks when you come back from Lost Wages or Reno. They try to get you to join them. They're singularly focused. They're real and they're unashamed of who they serve. They'll brag about their sin. But you know what? Those in this chair, they're singular focus too. They'll brag about their God and they try to get you to join them. They're real and unashamed as well. Could I get an amen? Yeah. These two chairs are easy to identify. But I want to go to the final chair because something happened there. Between this real chair and that real chair there, something happened Go back with me to uh, Joshua 24 and notice what's said here in Joshua 24. We see the flag plant in Joshua 24. Joshua says, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people say, we'll serve him as well. And then in Judges 2, we see a generation rise. They don't know him. They don't want to serve him. They disobey him and they serve other gods. What happened between those two chairs? Proverbs 27 asks the question, does the crown endure to every generation? The answer clearly is no. It takes maintenance, amen? Just because you're serving the Lord doesn't mean your kids will or grandkids will. Could I just swing you through one little thing? Who knows what happened in 1857 and 1858 in New York City? Anybody know? Anybody? Raise your hand and say, I know what happened, 1857, 1858. The great New York City revival. It began as a one-hour prayer meeting headed up by Jeremiah Lanfear, a Dutch Reformed businessman. He opened his office, his building up for prayer, advertised it, 
He was the first one to show the first day he was it. But that thing began to grow. And at its height, over 10,000 New Yorkers were being saved every single week. And not a one, two, three, pray after me. Weeping, begging God for mercy, confessing all their sin, begging God for help. Sailors coming in from offshore, coming across the big pond, didn't even know what was going on. Two miles out, they come under conviction for sin, start begging God for mercy. It swept our entire eastern seaboard. 10,000 a week in New York City, 50,000 a week for a year and a half to two years. And literally, many churches in the Carolinas today are church plants from the great New York City revival. It went across to London and began to shake London. The Holy Spirit of God moved in a very unique way. But visit New York City today. You'll find no vestige that God ever visited in such a way. All you'll find is a bronze bench with a bronze statue of Jeremiah Lanfear beckoning you to come and sit with him for an hour. And pray. 150, 160 years later, 140 years, that vestige, it's all gone. I believe chair two represents well this digression if we're not careful. What is chair two? I wrote it and gave it this label it's the God limited chair. It's the God limited chair. You say, you can't limit God. He's sovereign. I agree, He's sovereign. But then what do you do with Psalm 78, where they said of the Lord, they limited the Holy One of Israel. Hebrews 4 says that the Word preached did not profit them. Why? Because it wasn't mixed with faith. Do you know God wants to do a lot for you today? He wants to do a lot for your heart. He wants to do a lot for your home. But if you don't mix the Word of God with faith, you get nothing. It never solidifies. It just stays resin. This God-limited share, its description is, to me, very clearly this. The relationship to God is compromise. They're not committed totally to the Lord. They're, they compromise things. Second of all, the relationship to truth, they're renters. There's many truths that they don't argue with. They let you go do it, but they're not going to do that. They're not going to go ahead and yield the truth. They're renders. They're not owners. Their attitude to serving God is, it's more of this, have to. Well, if I have to, well, if you tell me to, okay, it's duty. It's not delight. The characteristics of those seated in it, they're not fully committed. They're only involved. Write that in there. Those in that second chair, you'll see them from time to time. They'll come to church Sunday morning. They'll, they'll go ahead once in a while, get involved. But they're just involved. They're not committed like first chair people. They're not passionate about the Lord. Number three, they conform to this world. Go to Romans 12. We're almost done. Romans 12. Watch this. In Romans chapter 12, in verse number 1, we find... A command from God in Romans 12 and verse 1. And look at what he says in Romans 12. In Romans 12 and verse number 1, he says this. 
He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, he's talking to saved people here by the mercies of God that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. Wow. <laughs> that speaks. That speaks of commitment, not just involvement. Look at this. Holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world. That's an interesting picture. Don't pour yourself into this world's mold. What it says is true success. What it says priorities ought to be. Don't pour yourself into this mold. This mold passes away. This mold isn't eternal. This world goes that one day it's going to be gone. Don't pour yourself into this thing. But instead of being conformed, be ye, look at this, transformed. That means completely changed by the renewing of your mind. I guess in some ways it would be a great compliment to be called a nonconformist and a transformationalist. Amen? They attempt to do the impossible. Write this in. Those in that second chair, they try to do something you can't do. It's impossible, but they try. They try to serve two gods. They try to serve two gods. Write that in there. Jesus Christ himself said that is a spiritual impossibility. It wasn't a man that said it. It was Jesus Christ that said it. In Matthew 6, he says in verse number 24, listen to this, go there with me. In Matthew 6, we're almost done this morning. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus Christ, speaking of this two God philosophy, says this in Matthew 6 and verse 24. He says, no man can serve two masters. Why? Why not? For either he will hate the one and love the other. Or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Now he lists the two masters. He says you cannot serve God and... What's that word? Mammon. What is mammon? We don't use that word today. What is mammon? Wealth and materialism. Buying things you don't need with money you don't have. To impress people you don't even care about. Welcome to America. It's the all-American dream. We think the life consists in the abundance of the things which we possess. You say, well, I don't possess much. I really don't. I'm a meager little pauper. Really? If you don't think you own anything, move. First of all, your garage that your car can't fit into because of all your abundance of things has got to get cleaned out. I mean, we could go on and on. This is the American way of doing it. We try to serve two masters. Those in that second chair do the spiritual impossible thing. They try to ride two horses going the opposite direction. This world isn't for Jesus. It's against Him. Amen? This is why Paul said, the world is crucified unto me and I am crucified to this world. What was he saying? Paul was saying this. When they throw a party, I'm not on the invitation list. Because when I come to their party, they don't want me there. Because I blow up their party telling them about the Lord. 
Because they don't want Him. They want this life. This is their God. And I come to the party and I blow it up. They, I'm the last guy they want to invite to their party. But you know what He adds? And you know what? I mean nothing to them. But this world means nothing to me. It's dead to me. It has no pull. I could care less about it because I've got a better one coming. Here's America. American Christians today, I said it the other night, we try to get two heavens. We get the one future, but we want one here now. And we work like crazy to serve both gods so we can have two heavens. Welcome to delusional living. Can't do it. But those in this second chair try to do it. Notice something as we're winding these thoughts down. The focus of those in that chair that sounds strange is outward. Well, that simply means they're most concerned about what others think about them rather than what God knows about them. The habits of those in that second chair, they often do attend church, but they do not read their Bible privately. They do not have an established prayer life, and they do not confess their sin privately and daily. They often serve God publicly, but they live a different life privately. Their spiritual temperature is not hot. It's not cold. What do you think it is? Say the word out loud. Lukewarm. As a result, they do not see answered prayer. As a result, they don't enjoy abiding peace. And as a result, they do not experience power over sin. As I close, be ready for this. This is going to hit you. Because it hits me. This chair. Not this one. Not this one. This chair produces most of the third chair people in the world today. That chair. Not the third chair. Mm -mm. The second chair, the God-limited chair, the lukewarm believer chair, that produces most of the third chair God-rejecting, hating people today. Now, here's your chance. Why? Why is that the chair? Dad, you could be in there. Why is that the chair? Mom, you could be there. Why is that the chair that produces most of the God-hating, Christ-rejecting people today rather than the third chair? Somebody raise your hand and say, because. Why? Say again. They think they're saved and they may be. They may be. I talked about, remember, Lot's wife. Lot was saved and lost it all. Lived a horrible, miserable, limited life. Hold on just a sec. Yes? Okay, they don't see the result they want, so they give up on God. That's close. It's not where I am. Sis, you had your hand up next. There's the word. Hypocrisy. I want to say this. Hypocrisy hardens hearts. When I served in the Marine Corps, you know who my greatest enemy was to the gospel? It was not the person who rejected it. 
Everybody knew what chair he was in. That made sense. That was understandable. He was the one who said he was saved. That went out and went boozing or hit the whorehouses with the others. That guy messed up the gospel. Because he claimed to be something he wasn't. He discredited the things of Jesus Christ. And he sowed confusion into the hearts of those that were there. Here's what happens in our homes. Our children grow up and they hear that Jesus saves. Praise the Lord, He does. We have heard the joyful sound. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. They walk into a house that claims that Jesus Christ is the head of that house. And as for me and my house, it even says it. We will serve the Lord. Joshua 24, 15. Planted right there. And they watch mom and dad publicly shout about the Lord. They watch mom and dad come to church. They sing the songs. They're in choir. And then they come home and they get to see a different mom. This mom doesn't act like Jesus lives. She's tearing down her man. She hates authority. She's gossiping. She gets to, they get to see a different dad. He's on the internet sites running through porn. They watch the marriage all messed up. And here's what they do. They go through life and they say, wow, my ship is a messed up ship. There's confusion. There's anger. There's tug of war. That's what you'll have. You try to serve two gods. You'll have hard port, hard starboard. Everybody will be seasick by the time you get done running that ship. Chasing God, chasing, chasing the world. Chasing God, going to the world. And you know what? They see the anger. They see the two different people. They say, oh man, if anybody had any clue. And you know what they say? They watch the world steam by. And that ship sails a straight course toward all kinds of fun. They actually enjoy the ride on that ship. And they looked around at their messed up ship and they know what they say. I'm done with this. And they jump ship and go over to the one that looks like it's actually real and happy. You want to know the dangerous chair up here? That one. Dads, you're not all in. You're saved. You're not all in. You're not here. You're there. You will rue the day you stayed there. You will weep great tears of regret for staying in that chair and not leading your family here. Moms, you will rue the day you stay in chair number two. Oh, heaven's your home. You got that nailed. But you will live with great regrets on earth, parked in that chair. That's the dangerous chair. Flip the page. As we close, I want to ask you a question. Which of those three chairs, primarily of those three chairs, which of those three chairs has your name on it? Did you figure out where you sit? You say, and I don't need to know, but I'm just going to ask. You said, yeah, I figured out my primary chair. I know primarily where I am. Slip your hand up. Say, yep, I figured it out. I'm not going to call on you. Just slip. You say, I figured out my chair. All right. Now, P.S. I'm going to throw a little caveat. This is kind of a poke. 
If you didn't raise your hand, it's not because you usually don't know what chair. You could be confused, but usually you know what chair, and it's not the first. So you don't want to begin the process of getting right by even admitting you're in the wrong chair. I've watched this. Did you find out what chairs your children are in? Amen? Did you find out your children's chair? Hey, kids, did you find out what chair mom and dad are in? Did you figure it out? All right. All right. Now, in the spirit of honesty, I have to be transparent. What chairs are our six children in? We have four of our children primarily in the first chair. One of them you know, Kimberly. One of our children kind of bounces between the two, more of a second chair. And one of our children is in the third chair. You watched me run a little video of the choir singing the special. I send him photos. I'll send him pastors telling him hi, choirs singing. For there was a time he was on my ship. And somewhere along the line, he just rented and rented and rented. And when he got his own, he said, I want to live for me. Don't know how, don't know why, but I'll send him and tap him because I want to see him one day there. It's had its own value because it keeps me humble. I can't claim 100%. He calls me every week, and when I say, I love you, son, he always says, love you too, dad. One day. One day. Oh, where am I? Primarily here. But once in a while, I slide over there for a bit. get upset about something, I get my focus off the one who I should have kept. I slide over there once in a while. And people have asked me, which chair is more comfortable? <laughs> the one you sit in the longest always gets the warmest. Don't stay in that one very long. It gets too comfortable. And so this morning as I close, if you're not in the first chair, I want you to respond today. If you're a second chair believer or a third chair rejecter, I want you to respond. If your children aren't in the first chair, you ought to come and pray for them today. And thirdly, if you're in the third chair this morning, this I know, the day you trust Christ, you always start there. He takes you straight to the first chair those honeymoon days. Three chairs, three generations, three people. Where are you and where do you want to be?